Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. This week, as the Supreme Court began its new term, the nine justices on Tuesday heard arguments about a crucial voting rights case, the gerrymandering of districts in Wisconsin, that gave Republicans a tremendous advantage there. Ari Berman was at the Supreme Court. He will report. Also, our Joan Walsh sat down for a chat last week with Hillary Clinton. They talked about what happened in the election and about Hillary's new book, What Happened. We'll speak with Joan and listen to clips from their conversation. But first, we have a special segment for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. And for that, we turn to E.J. Dion. He's a columnist for The Washington Post. He teaches at Georgetown University, and we see him a lot on MSNBC. He's written seven books. The new one, just published, is titled One Nation After Trump. E.J. Dion, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, you open your new book by declaring that a crisis can be an opportunity. We certainly have a crisis. We have a president who's ignorant, narcissistic, reckless, abusive. I could go on. But how would you describe the crisis we are in right now? Well, let me first say, as you know, the book is co-authored with my friends, uh, uh, Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann. And um, we came together on this book in, initially because we felt this sense of crisis, that uh, somebody like Donald Trump really had no business being president of the United States, which we say right there on the first page of the yeah. book. But the opportunity, I think, is visible uh, all over the country. First, I think Trump has given the system a jolt. Um, there were a lot of things slowly decaying in the system, um, and Trump has sped this up to the point where no one can miss it. We've had a decline in political norms. We lay a lot at the feet of a radicalized Republican Party in our book. Um, but, uh, Trump has kind of obliterated political norms, and you don't realize how important norms are, which are basically basic understandings how people 
in power or close to power should behave. You don't realize how important they are until they disappear altogether. I've been saying a lot uh, in the Trump years um, that the wisest person is the political philosopher Joni Mitchell, uh, who said, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Mm. And Trump is sure reminding us of that. Secondly, um, we're seeing sort of an autocratic side to Trump, which is a genuine threat. And we can see how our um, institutions can be subverted. You know, he had to, in classic autocratic fashion, he's attacking the courts, attacking the media, demonizing uh, his opponents, trying to undermine the very idea of facts. I mean, the notion of alternative facts. All of this has called forth um, a powerful response. I think in the media that I've been involved with all my life, I think there's a realization that uh, there is something wrong with false balance and that you you know, the media's job is to tell the truth. Um, and if it's inconvenient, uh, you don't really have to say, well, there's another side to this story when there really isn't another side uh, to a set of facts. You're seeing it, especially in the mobilization um, around the country, both in civil society and in politics. Um, you, uh, every Trump action has drawn an extraordinary outpouring of civic activism, whether it was the deportations where people rushed to the airports, lawyers rushed to the courts, um, as you know, citizens rushed to aid uh, their neighbors, um, whether it's on the, the DACA uh, ruling where there was an immediate pushback. Uh, perhaps the most impressive pushback was on the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, where many Republican congressmen were, who from very Republican districts we're shocked to see um, enormous turnouts of their own constituents saying uh, this law shouldn't be uh, repealed, that uh, we should build on it. Um, uh, finally, I think you're seeing some real activism uh, all the way down to the precinct level in the country. And we talk about a lot of groups in the country that are recruiting candidates for office up and down um, the ballot. Um, and people trying to turn anti-Trump anger into actual political organization on the ground. And um, this is something that needed to happen to make our democracy work in any event. And I think Trump is, has accelerated this process. And while the risks of Trump are enormous, that aspect of this period is very constructive and helpful. The subtitle of your book, One Nation After Trump, is A Guide for the Perplexed. And of course, you took that from the medieval Jewish scholar Moses Maimonides, whose book with that title was published in 1190. I learned this from Wikipedia. That Guide to the Perplexed sought to find rational explanations for many events in the Bible. I see that you, like Maimonides, are seeking rational explanations for, in this case, events in our recent political history, like what the hell happened to make Trump president? Do you have a rational explanation for that? Well, first of all, every single one of us is uh, deeply grateful that you compared us to Maimonides. So <laughs> okay. I will pass this on to my co-authors. Thank you for that. Um, well, there is a rational explanation uh, for, uh, for this. First, we talk a lot in the book at the beginning about the fact that we now have a non-majoritarian democracy in the United States. And that cannot be forgotten, that Trump lost the popular vote by 2.9 million, that the Electoral College 
is increasingly out of step with where people actually live in the country. We only had three elections from 1824 when popular voting started to 1996 where you had the electoral vote out of tune with the popular vote. And two of those were quite weird. There was really only one that was just straight out out of line. Uh, We've had two such elections since 2000. We argue that's not an accident um, because the Electoral College vastly overrepresents rural America, represents small, overrepresents smaller states, um, and compound that with the United States Senate, where by 2050, uh, 70% of Americans will live in 15 states, which means 70% of Americans will have 30% of the Senate, uh, represent, uh, which is there's something wrong with that. Then gerrymandering, voter suppression and the impact of big money on politics. So that's one piece we really have to address as a country because it's making us an undemocratic democracy. Uh, But the other side of it is that the country went through um, an enormous amount of turmoil in a very short time. The Iraq War followed by the Great Recession um, and all of this happening at a time when economic inequality um, has been rising, that we felt the fruits of globalization and technological change for a long time, but it really hit a crisis point. Um, and we don't uh, shy away from saying that uh, Trump ran, in many cases, a directly racist campaign. There's nothing else you can say about calling Mexican immigrants rapists. Um, and that there was certainly race and racial reaction and reaction immigration certainly played um, a very important role in his victory. But you can't write it all off to that. We, we think it's, it's a form of denial to say race wasn't part of it, but it's also a form of denial uh, to ignore the vast inequalities both among Americans as individuals, um, but also across regions, um, even within states. Uh, I'm talking to you from Massachusetts, where um, the old mill towns, like the one I grew up in, um, have really been hammered by economic change. They were, um, you know, Massachusetts is so democratic that they voted for um, Hillary by a, a large margin anyway. But the mill towns were more open to Trump than the traditional suburbs. And you see the split between Chicago and downstate Illinois, New York metro area versus upstate. Um, and, of course, those key Midwestern states that Trump very, very narrowly um, carried in places like Erie and Reading, Pennsylvania, um, deindustrialization is re- has really hammered living standards. And so for progressives, I think um, there is potentially a, um, I think a useless argument, a counterproductive argument to say Trump was about race. No, he was about um, economic discontent. I think uh, we should accept that race played a big role in it, but the part we can most address are economic inequalities that actually affect parts of the white working class, but also a very large share of African Americans uh, and Latinos. And if I could add one more thing, the sure. I have been really struck thinking about the book and the election by the slogan of the uh, 1963 march on Washington, and the slogan was "Jobs and Freedom." And what that slogan embodied is the idea that if you care about racial justice, you also have to care about economic justice. And if you care about economic justice, you have to care about racial justice. And that we need to bring these causes together and not split them from each other. Splitting them from each other is Donald Trump's game, and we shouldn't play that. 
So do you think that Bernie Sanders identified the issues that can be deployed to recruit Trump voters back into the Democratic fold? Of course, there's a lot of people at the Democratic National Committee who don't agree with that. No, I think Bernie um, identified a number of issues that actually Hillary Clinton picked up on. Um, She didn't go for single payer, but she did have a very substantial expansion of Obamacare. She came very close to adopting Bernie's uh, free college. And I think that young voters, not only in the U.S., but in Britain notably, um, have shown that they feel very excluded from uh, economic opportunity uh, in this period. Um, And I think Bernie um, addressing class division, which is something he's done all his life, um, is an important part of of the puzzle here. Um, And so I don't think it's, uh, you know, I have a kind of very broad view of the left that you, the the left can't win without the center left and the center left can't win without the left. Um, And I think what we need is, not a do you move to the left or move to the center. I think we need to focus on what steps do we need to take to create a more equal society? Um, what steps do we need to take to empower workers in an economy that increasingly disempowers them? Uh, Bernie talks a lot about that, but there are a lot of other people on the progressive side, I think, who are very open to that, whether they supported Bernie or Hillary. I'm, uh, yes, I am trying to pitch a big tent uh, here because yes. I think that's the only way progressives can win. We've touched briefly on race as a factor in Trump's victory, on economic changes as a factor in Trump's victory. What about the Russia factor? Well, I think both Russia and Comey, which are very distinct, obviously, given what Comey has done since. But yes, I think that there were critical moments in the campaign where material emerged that disrupted a negative storyline about Donald Trump. Some of this material emerged during the whole controversy over uh, the uh, thoroughly legitimate controversy over Trump essentially confessing to sexual assault. Um, And this information came out. But even more interesting, and I think this is going to be something that we're going to see Mueller and his investigators looking at closely, is the are the messages that uh, it appears came from Russian sources that were very carefully targeted to the right voters in the right Midwestern states. Where did their targeting information come from? Has Vladimir Putin built his own brilliant set of American political advisors over there, or was he relying on help from the Trump campaign? We don't know that yet. Last question. Your book is called One Nation After Trump, and you argue that Trumpism does not own the future. That is great news. Are you sure you're right about that? I deeply believe that. I I truly and honestly do. I I, I suppose I could get more publicity for the book if I denied a basic tenet of the book, but I can't. Um, You know, a couple of things here. Um, First of all, Donald Trump did not get a majority in the election, and he's hovering around 38, 42 percent in the polls, the lowest polling uh, for a new president that we have ever seen. So from the beginning, he never had a majority of the country on his side. And unlike other presidents who try to reach out to their opponents, all he's done is reach out to a very narrow part of his base. And so he hasn't added to um, his percentage. Secondly, Trump is exceptionally weak uh, among younger voters. Um, he, he did no better than, and I think he may have been a point weaker than Mitt Romney among younger voters. Hillary lost some ground, not to Trump, but to third-party voting. 
Um, and so if, uh, you know, the young do own the future and they are not on Donald Trump's side, and um, I'm sure you've talked about this for a long time, the, um, the future of the country is also a country that will be more demographically diverse, more Latino, more Asian, more African-American, and those um, communities are not at all enamored of Trump. So I think that, you know, in the long haul, um, the country is not going in that direction, but we have to fight in the short haul um, to, A, prevent the damage Trump can do. Um, you know, organizing did a good job on that around Obamacare. I think we've got to do the same around this awful reactionary tax bill. Um, and uh, also protect, um, you know, protect immigrants and African-Americans from uh, some of the things this administration could do or in some cases this has already done. But we also have to build to the, for the future. And I guess that's the last thing I want to say, if I could, about the book, sure. which is um, we think that, you know, uh, opposition to Trump is important, but conversion, political persuasion, is also an important part of the story. And so the whole back half of our book is our sort of program for social reconstruction, if I can put it in those grand terms, where we talk about the steps we need to take to create a more just uh, economy, the steps we need to take to strengthen civil society, and a lot of steps we need to take uh, to reform our democracy. Um, you know, people aren't against Trump just because they don't like the guy, although there's a lot of reason for that. Uh, they're against him because they don't want the country to go in the direction uh, he wants to lead us. And we, we sort of hope that our suggestions would be a kind of first draft set of ideas uh, for people to think about as they try to build, uh, to create an alternative vision to the one Trump is offering. E.J. Dion, he's co-author of the new book, One Nation After Trump. E.J., thanks so much. It's been great having you on the show. Real joy to be with you. Thank you. The Supreme Court began its new term this week with a full panel of nine justices, including Trump's man, Neil Gorsuch. One of the crucial cases they heard this week on Tuesday is one from Wisconsin challenging the state's political gerrymandering. That was a key factor in Trump winning Wisconsin and the nation last November. For an update, we turn to our man on voting rights, Ari Berman. He wrote the award-winning book, Give Us the Ballot, the Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He's a fellow at the Nation Institute, and he covered voting rights for the nation for a long time. Now he's a senior editor at Mother Jones. We reached him today in Washington, D.C. Ari, welcome back. Hey, John. Good to talk to you again. Thank you for having me, even though I'm now in enemy territory. <laughs> Wait, you'll, you'll never be an enemy of ours, Ari. So today, we're recording this on Tuesday. What have you been doing today in our nation's capital? So uh, on Tuesday morning uh, at 10 a.m., I covered a very important uh, partisan gerrymandering uh, case. Basically, uh, Wisconsin passed one of the most extreme partisan gerrymanders in the country that was designed to give Republicans a majority in the state legislature in the U.S. House, essentially for a decade. Uh, and that's exactly what has occurred. That gerrymander was challenged by Democrats. The map was struck down by a district court in 2016, and then it went to the Supreme Court. And so the issue here is not only Wisconsin's maps, but whether or not the Supreme Court is going to rule against or create some new standard against partisan gerrymandering in the future. You say 
the Wisconsin maps were extreme political gerrymandering. How extreme are they? Very extreme. Just to give you one example, in 2012, Barack Obama carried Wisconsin by seven points. So the state went pretty solidly blue, but Republicans won 60 of 99 seats in the state legislature, over 60% of the seats. So we have a situation in Wisconsin, and this has also been the case elsewhere, that Republicans are getting a minority of votes in Wisconsin, but they're getting a huge majority of seats. And it's been described as one of the most extreme gerrymanders in modern American history. But the thing is, Wisconsin is not just an aberration. This has been done by Republicans all across the country, whether it was in North Carolina or Pennsylvania or Ohio. And it's honestly been done by Democrats in Maryland and Illinois. It's just that Democrats control many, many fewer seats than Democrats do when it comes to gerrymandering. Now, we're talking about political gerrymandering, adjusting districts to benefit one political party. The Supreme Court for decades now has said that racial gerrymandering is unconstitutional. You can't reduce black voting strength by confining black voters to a few districts, by drawing geographical uh, boundaries for legislative seats in the state legislatures and and in Congress. But the court has never said political gerrymandering is unconstitutional. It's been as American as apple pie, you might say. Tell us a little about its history and why the Supreme Court has stayed away from it. So gerrymandering dates back to 1812 when there was a, a gerrymander by the, by the name of Eldridge Jerry and the, the press in Massachusetts said it looked like a salamander and that's, it became known as a gerrymander. So it's been going on for a long time, but it's gotten a lot worse because of, because of one-party control, uh, because of uh, partisan bias, and also because the technology has become so much more sophisticated. You can figure out if you're in a, a Democrat in a democratically controlled state, you can figure out how to surgically reduce representation to as many Republicans as possible or vice versa. And that's what we saw in Wisconsin. They ran all the data as many times as possible, and they figured out how they could produce a map that wouldn't just benefit in Republicans in one election cycle, but would benefit them from, for a decade or more. And under the Voting Rights Act, there's clear standards for when minorities are being disadvantaged in the political process. There are not the same standards for partisan gerrymandering, because a lot of people think that in gerrymandering is inherently partisan and political. But what the plaintiffs in this case, which are Democrats in Wisconsin, are saying is if gerrymandering goes too far in one direction, then it should be struck down. And that would create limits on gerrymandering in both red and blue states, and I think it would be a lot better for democracy. So Wisconsin uh, famously introduced some of the most extreme kinds of voter suppression and voter ID laws that you and I have talked about here more than once. This case is not directly about voter disfranchisement, vote suppression, vote ID laws, or or is it? Well, it's about voting rights in a different kind of way. It's about a lack of representation. So Wisconsin has really done everything in their power to diminish democracy. They have passed a a very strict voter ID law that disenfranchised tens of thousands of voters, and they have also passed one of the country's worst redistricting maps. So they said 
at basically at the same time they did these two things. They said, we are going to make it harder for our political opponents to have access to the ballot, and we're also going to ensure that our majorities are secure as possible, that if somehow people can overcome voter ID and all of the other limits on access to the ballot, well, they still aren't going to have a choice in most legislative districts because they're so gerrymandered. So Wisconsin has really gone, you know this better than anyone, John, as someone who's from Minnesota, Wisconsin has gone from a laboratory of democracy, a country that's historically expanded voting rights, like Minnesota, to a country that is a laboratory for how to restrict democracy. And I think that's a very, very sad turnaround in recent years. And I understand it's not just the state legislature. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, uh, across the nation, there are 16 or 17 Republican seats in the House of Representatives that are the result of extreme partisan bias in the drawing of district lines. Of course, the Democrats need to retake 24 seats in the House, and if 16 or 17 of those are unfairly apportioned, uh, that becomes extremely significant. It becomes very significant because there are up to 22 seats in the Congress that Republicans hold because of gerrymandering. And Democrats need 24 to take back the House. So basically, they're running a very, very uphill battle. Let's say this is a football game and you have to go 100 yards. Republicans are starting on the 75-yard line when it comes to keeping the House and keeping state legislatures. Yeah, it's possible something could go wrong, that Democrats could, that there's an overwhelming wave. But right now, the current forecast by one analyst for the House, have Democrats winning 54% of the vote statewide and only getting 47% of the seats in the House. And that is the definition of a rigged election. If you get the most votes, you should get the most seats. And that's not what's happening around the country because of gerrymandering. So the case that the Supreme Court heard arguments on today focuses on the issue of how extreme does gerrymandering have to be before the courts say it's a violation of the Constitution? I guess it's an equal protection violation. Is that the argument that's being made? There's two arguments. One is that it's an equal protection violation, and one is that it's a First Amendment um, violation. And th this is uh, so important because the court, at least the conservative members, and I think even Justice Kennedy, is reluctant to weigh in here because they don't know where you draw the line. Will every single gerrymander in the country be challenged? Will the Supreme Court have 50 new state and legislative maps to have to adjudicate in 2020? Where do you draw the line? But basically what the plaintiffs in the case are saying is that when things are so obviously bad, we have a situation in Wisconsin where Republicans win 49% of the vote, but pick up 61% of the seats, and there's no, uh, nothing else justifies that other than partisanship, then you should be able to figure out a way to, to get rid of the most extreme maps, uh, which at least would curb the worst abuses in Wisconsin and North Carolina and other states. It's never going to be like a great paradise as long as politicians are drawing their own maps, and that's why I think we need independent redistricting commissions. But in short of that, they could certainly uh, strike down the worst laws, and, and that would act as a deterrent to states in the future when they decide how they're going to gerrymander, because this is all going to happen again in 2020 after the next census comes out. Independent redistricting commissions, this is what California has and several other states. How would that work, and is that something that the Supreme Court might, uh, might put into practice uh, as a result of this case? I, I don't think the Supreme Court's going to tell states how to do redistricting, um, but I, I think that, like, I don't know how it works in California, but at least in Iowa, where I'm from, there's been an independent commission. And they basically 
they're, they draw the state maps and they're respected. Politicians don't interfere with them. And, and that's just how it goes. Now, this is a little bit more complicated in states that are more uh, demographically diverse. But nonetheless, you can do it. Um, and there's no reason why uh, politicians should be drawing their own districts. I mean, it's an inherent conflict of interest no matter who's in charge. There are people, whether they are retired judges or whether they're administrators or whether they're members from both parties, that should be able to agree on how to do this uh, in, a, in a more fair way. Because what we learned in Wisconsin is that the maps were drawn in such an unfair way that any other map drawn by anybody else would have been far more fair. Now we get to the big question. What will the Supreme Court do? How will the justices vote? You were there this morning. There's four liberals, there's four conservatives, and then there's Justice Kennedy, who's sort of in the middle. Uh, This whole thing comes down to what does Justice Kennedy want? Did you get any clues today, Tuesday, when uh, when you observed the Supreme Court arguments? We got some clues. Uh, I remember covering the Voting Rights Act oral argument in 2013 when the Supreme Court eventually struck down the Voting Rights Act, and it was clear from the very beginning that Kennedy was not a swing vote in that case, that he was very hostile to the Voting Rights Act. In this case, he was much more of a swing vote. He basically asked the lawyers of the state of Wisconsin, um, could gerrymandering be a First Amendment violation, meaning uh, could it violate the right to free speech, and could people be denied uh, free speech rights by being denied representation, such as Democrats in Wisconsin? Uh, he asked the state, what if the overriding concern was drawing uh, a district to benefit uh, party X or Y? Couldn't that be a standard for, for, eliminating, redistrict, for eliminating gerrymandering? And he, he also said that he didn't ask any questions of the plaintiffs bringing the case, he he focused all his questions on the state of Wisconsin, which is revealing because usually the conservative justices question the liberal witnesses and vice versa. Let me just inject here. The state of Wisconsin is defending the current system of gerrymandering in this case. Exactly. The state of Wisconsin is defending the current system of gerrymandering, and Kennedy only questioned them. The fact that he didn't question the people challenging the map suggested that Either, number one, he'd been persuaded, which it didn't seem like he was, or number two, he didn't really have questions about how their process was going to work. He really wanted Wisconsin to defend its own maps. Now, it's very possible that Kennedy decides that he doesn't want to enter this debate, uh, that he thinks that this is too much of a can of worms to open up, that even though he finds gerrymandering distasteful and realizes that these maps were, were, were gerrymandered to benefit the Republicans, he doesn't, he doesn't want uh, to, get, to get into all of this. He wants it to be left to the states. It's also possible that he feels like he's, things have gotten so bad, it's so obvious uh, that, that he decides to rule with the liberals, or he tries to find some sort of middle ground. Um, but he does seem, at least on this case, to be a pure swing vote. Uh, no one else seemed to be uh, at, at the least but undecided. Justice Thomas didn't speak, so I, I don't know about him. Um, but certainly the four liberals and then the three other, uh, the three other conservatives that did speak, uh, they were very clear in terms of their opinions. And when will we hear something from the Supreme Court on this? Most likely we're going to hear something next year. Uh, and that'll be interesting because it's going to be in, in the middle of the 2018 elections. And then uh, we're going to be entering soon enough the whole next round of redistricting after 2020. So this is a case that, that could have, if it's decided uh, in, in a broad way, very, very important national ramifications. Ari Berman, read him now at motherjones.com. Ari, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Good to talk to you again.
Now it's time to talk about Hillary. Our Joan Walsh interviewed her last week. Joan, of course, is national affairs correspondent for the nation and a frequent guest here, as well as a political analyst for MSNBC. She also wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, Hillary has been doing interviews about her new book, What Happened. What was it like for you to sit down with her last week? You know, it was very surreal because you sit down with her and you look at her and you think you are our president, except she's not. Um, And that experience is, is more affecting and for me even traumatic than you would think. I mean, I endorsed her in the pages of The Nation. Everyone knows that. Um, My daughter worked for her in five states over 2016. So, you know, people know that I actually respect her and thought she would be a great president. But there's something about being in her presence that is very sobering and um, I don't want to say upsetting because that's a little bit extreme, but... It, it 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 stayed with me for days. Well, we have some clips that you have provided of your conversation with her. The first one, you talk with her about writing the book and going on the book tour. Let's listen. I'll tell you what feels therapeutic, because the book writing was cathartic. That was absolutely the best thing I could have done for myself. But I feel like I'm somewhat of the therapist-in-chief at these book signing and other events. The crying people. So many crying people, so many heartfelt comments about how they feel and what they care about and are worried about. Uh, And it's both very uh, heartening because people are still sorting it through and feeling deeply about what they want for the country. And it is uh, emotionally draining because I see all this angst and pain uh, that people are still going through. So many crying people. That's Hillary speaking with Joan Walsh of The Nation in New York last week. Joan, you brought up in that conversation part of her book, What Happened, that I had not seen quoted, where she talks about what uh, Bernie proved. Could you just remind us about that part? Yeah, I mean, I wrote about this in The Nation um, before the interview because I thought it was so important and it was really ignored, basically. And I guess I'll, I'll read it or yes, I'll, and I'll please, try, to, I'll try to make it short. She says, Bernie proved again that it's important to try to set lofty goals that pe- people can organize around and dream about, even if it takes generations to achieve them. Democrats should redouble our efforts to develop bold, creative ideas that offer broad-based benefits for the whole country. In the context of what Bernie proved, you asked where she stands today on Medicare for All. Of course, Bernie introduced the Medicare for All bill in the Senate uh, a couple of weeks ago. Let's listen to her answer about where she stands today on Medicare for All. You know what? Medicare right now is a great program that works for people above 65, many of whom have additional private coverage. Right. So it is not a single-payer system. 
it itself is, right, but, but for the over 65, a, a very big percentage does not just rely on that. Right. Um, you have 50% plus people who get their health care from their employers. Uh, you know, how do we move from that? And there was a fascinating comparison that I saw recently among about, I think, eight or 10 countries that have a combination of of single and multiple payer, but get to universal coverage and produce quality care at a lower cost than we do. Right. So whether it's Canada or Britain or France or Germany or Switzerland, I mean, there's a lot of different models out there. And I, my goal and my banner is quality, affordable health care for all. Right. And that's where I'm taking my stand. And I'm going to be a responsible, passionate advocate within that debate. Your, but your position in the campaign was people could buy into Medicare at right. post-55? Yes, we, we would start at 60 and then go down to 55. We'd have a public option in every right. state. I mean, basically... So it's the beginning. Yes, and you know, and we would have a, um, a maybe a potential for Medicaid buy-in. I mean, there would be lots of different ways. We, What I don't want, and, I, and maybe we've missed this um, attack, although they will come back on the Republican side, right. is for people to discount how hard it was to get the Affordable Care Act passed. Of course it was a compromise. I mean, that's what a democracy does to make big change in right. most instances. But what I worried about is saying, okay, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what happened. We were at 90% coverage. Yeah. You know, 90 to 100 is 10. That's a lot easier than zero to 100. Right. And so uh, I think we're in a good position to defend the Affordable Care Act, but we have to be really vigilant. And that vigilance requires everybody on the Democratic side being you know, united in saying you're not going to take it away. That's Hillary speaking with Joan Walsh. Uh, so, Joan, where does she stand on Medicare for all? It sounds like she's not really for it. I, I had the same reaction. Um, you know, I don't think she's for it, honestly, or I think she's for it as a down-the-road, uh, you know, possibility. Uh, and that that is who she is. I mean, part of me was a little disappointed in that answer, but part of me also knows that nobody has really laid out, you know, a, a totally convincing and walkable road to Medicare for all. So it's kind of you know, it, 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 it's kind of what she's like, you know, she's, she's very pragmatic, even as I think she's willing to praise people who are going to go past her on the left, because, you know, throughout our history, John, as you know, people like her have needed people to their left. But I think she's being a little evasive about it. And, you know, this was always, I endorsed her, but I always thought this was a little bit of a problem with her. She's more of an incrementalist than I am. One of the most damaging things to her during the campaign, which really hurt her with young people, especially young uh, black voters, was all the attention to the speech she gave back in the 80s about super predators. Tell us how you brought that up, and then we'll listen to her answer. Well, I brought it up gently, um, because I know that it's a sore subject. It's a sore subject in the book. She feels, uh, you know, she, she apologized for it during the campaign for that one, one time, and it's only one time. 
that she used the term super predators. She explained what she was talking about, which wasn't which wasn't racial, um, but I you know she understands and I, I do too why people took it that way. Uh, but she also is kind of aggrieved and maybe rightly so that people who voted for the crime bill that she was talking about, like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden uh, and many, many others, uh, including most of the Congressional Black Caucus, were not dragged for their, you know, for their vote the way she was dragged for that one word. She won black millennials, let's not make any mistake, but she didn't turn them out the way she should have or could have um, or might have wanted to. And so this is a really sore spot for her. So let's listen to Hillary Clinton answering Joan Walsh's question about super predators. I always thought that this was a deliberate, intentional misinterpretation of what my whole speech said, where I went after you know, gangs and particularly a lot of the gangs that were uh, terrorizing whole communities and were engaging in horrific behavior. Right. And it, it, it wasn't all of one race. It wasn't all of one area. It was a real problem coming out of the 80s. And anybody who lived in New York or lived in another city knows that. Oakland. I lived in Oakland. You lived in Oakland. I mean, this was a manufactured attack. And you know, we did our best to point out that it was, you know, clearly not uh, what it was being painted as and over and over said, yeah, you know, people voted for this, not me. Right. <laughs> you know, I right. was talk. I was talking about, you know, the threats that uh, the people who voted for it were responding to. And, uh, you know, it. we now know a lot more than we did then about how it was being manipulated. And one of the biggest disappointments of her campaign was a decline in black turnout compared to four years ago, especially among younger black people, black millennials. Joan, you asked her about that. Let's listen to what she had to say about the lower turnout of black millennials. Let, let me say this. And, and the, the best analysis that I've seen has come from people who tried to dig into this post-election. Um, I think the fact that President Obama wasn't on the ballot right. was not just uh, a, a disappointment, it was a real um, kind of end point for a lot of people. Because I saw some focus groups after the election where young black men were asked why they didn't vote and <coughs> The most memorable answer I saw was, well, you know, I, I voted, I voted for Obama and my life didn't change. Right. So why should I expect anybody else to change my life? So it was a combination of great pride in him. And if he'd been on the ballot, I'm sure right. more of them would have voted. But a lot of them didn't feel like it did make much of a difference. Right. And they I heard that. Too. Yeah. I, I, so I, we heard that. We saw that. So that was one factor. But I think it's really important not to miss the role of voter suppression. Absolutely. So we really have a hard time sorting out um, who did not want to vote and who was prevented from voting. Right. Hillary on black millennials not voting. Uh, after the tape was turned off, uh, Joan, and the two of you headed out the door, you write in The Nation about 
a remarkable email that she discovered on her uh, cell phone. Tell us about that. Well, we were talking, but she got out her phone the way many of us do and just, you know, checked messages. And then she saw somebody had emailed her. I saw her eyes widen and she said, wow. And I asked her what she was looking at, hoping it was not Trump declaring war on North Korea. Uh, And she handed me her phone, which was actually a kind of amazing gesture. And she, she was looking at some remarks by Michelle Obama, which were basically to say that any woman who voted against Hillary Clinton voted against their own voice in a way. To me, it doesn't say as much about Hillary Clinton. Everybody's trying to wonder, what does it mean for Hillary? No, no, no. What does it mean for us as women? And Michelle basically goes on to say, to me, that just means you don't like your own voice. She was obviously visibly moved by that, and honestly, so was I. Joan Walsh, you can read her report about her interview with Hillary last week at thenation.com. Joan, thanks so much for talking with us today, and thanks for bringing in those clips. Of course, John, anytime. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.